Welcome back to the Messy City Podcast. Happy to have you here and uh, listening. Again, I really appreciate uh, everybody who hits that like or follow button. And uh, if you have the opportunity to leave a review on uh, Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen, that is most appreciated. It really helps the podcast uh, rankings and uh, just gets it a little more traction in the world so that more and more people will uh, be able to hear this. Uh, so I thank you all for, for listening and uh, for helping out in any way you can. And as always, if you have any messages for me, uh, suggestions, comments, critiques, whatever, please do uh, email me. It's not hard to find me. You can find a link off the uh, Substack page, uh, which is uh, um, it's actually, if you just Google the Messy City on Substack or Kevin Klinkenberg on Substack, it's, uh, it's very easy to find. There are not many Kevin Klinkenbergs out there. So uh, thanks, for, uh, thanks for paying attention. Uh, as I record this today, it's, uh, it's October 13th. It's actually uh, Friday the 13th, uh, and uh, it's uh, the time of year when things, I guess, are getting uh, focused on Halloween and spooky stuff, but it's also, it's also a time when uh, there's a lot of very sobering and uh, uh, tragic news uh, in the world, and uh, I, I don't mean to ignore uh, any of that, but I think uh, what I'd like to do here today is uh, is actually try to take your mind off of it and focus on a, on a few other things. Uh, and so uh, what I have here today are three uh, topic areas that have been uh, front of mind for me uh, and uh, from which I've, I've had uh, some uh, direct experience this summer, this uh, fall uh, that I wanted to share and uh, all relate to the world of uh, placemaking and different aspects of uh, what is happening and uh, places also where people are doing some good things and, and, and some areas where I think there are a lot of questions to be had about what our priorities are. So uh, the first thing I wanted to bring up, uh, first chapter here is uh, last week I had the opportunity to attend the uh, annual International Downtown Association uh, Conference. I think I mentioned this in a previous episode that IDA is sort of the trade organization for groups like Midtown Casey Now, uh, where I'm the executive director, uh, or uh, your local downtown association. If you're in a, certainly at least a medium-sized city, you probably have a downtown association of some kind. Uh, and uh, they generally belong to IDA and, and participate. Uh, so about 1,500 people got together this year in Chicago. Uh, always, uh, always good to talk with colleagues that are uh, working in the world of place management and, uh, and share tips, uh, and tricks. Uh, although I will say I'm at a, I'm at an age and a point in my life now where I'm getting a little conferenced out and, uh, I don't, uh, I don't enjoy these as much as I used to, uh, when I was in my thirties uh, say, but, uh, uh, it's still good to connect with people and, and, and learn when you can. I think one of the interesting things, again, I, I, wanted to emphasize, I had a previous uh, episode where I talked about what we do with Midtown Casey now and, so, and the importance of place management. When you get together with other colleagues and see people doing it around the country, it really does uh, reveal uh, how much uh, incredible experimentation there is going on at the local level uh, in regards to uh, public space management and place management. And there's a, there's a pretty broad variety in what these organizations do and focus on. And I guess that really shouldn't be a surprise because they grow out of what 
whatever is important in that community or that neighborhood. Uh, so like, for example, in, uh, in our community where I work, uh, our focus is really a clean and safe program. Uh, and that's really what our constituents are looking for. They are looking for extra attention uh, for uh, uh, security operations, for cleanliness in the public space, and for improving public space uh, with beautification. There are others that you visit that in folk that may focus entirely on public space beautification, uh, and uh, and you know that's really uh, the eighty or ninety percent of what they do on very small proportion, say on security. And then, of course, there are the opposite. There are others that really focus primarily on security because that's the need and less so on uh, physical improvements. Uh, so and and again, there's there's even more beyond that. You can find these organizations that uh, undertake master plans for the future that get involved with design uh, and development issues. I think one of the things that I would say to uh, my fellow uh, designers, people in the planning and urban design world, uh, what, what really interests me is how little overlap I see uh, at these conferences between uh, people who work in design and planning and people who actually work in place management. And uh, I feel like that's an incredible missed opportunity. Uh, so I hope over time we can find ways for these groups to connect. You know, years ago uh, when I was really cutting my teeth and learning a lot about uh, the world of uh, urban design and, and uh, community planning, uh, like many people, I learned a lot from uh, Liz Plater-Zyberg, uh, the PZ of DPZ uh, co-design. And uh, one of the things that Liz used to talk about all the time is that uh, this act of what we call community building is really a, a three-legged stool that's composed of design, policy, and management. And uh, I have long felt that we, uh, we have uh, far too much emphasis on policy. And by that, I mean, we have too many really smart, capable think people thinking about policy and not nearly enough on management. Uh, and also, frankly, uh, throughout my career, I felt like not nearly enough on design. Uh, it felt like there's probably been, you know, maybe uh, let's call it 70% uh, emphasis on policy, 20% on design and 10% on management. And, uh, you know, in, in, in the real world, what, what, uh, what's incredibly important is management uh, and uh, the the human side of making sure that a place is cared for, um, that you have people that are out there doing the work every day. Um, I, one of the things in, in my own community that I have that, you know, I have belabored and certainly others have talked about endlessly is that we, we can always find money to build something, whatever it is, some public improvement. Uh, especially a larger, the larger the improvement, uh, in some ways it feels like it's much easier to find the money to uh, get it done. So let's say we're going to do a, a $50 million uh, park. Um, we can create a bond issue and a campaign and uh, some sexy renderings and get that done. And, uh, you know, many cities are able to accomplish those sorts of things. What we are not very good at is establishing uh, systems and sources of uh, money to maintain them. Uh, and even if, even when there is sources of funding to maintain them, just not being on the ball on a regular basis to make sure whatever we build is clean, it's, a, it's attractive, uh, it's obviously well cared for. Uh, and um, th that's a shame because that, without that, um, 
then you really won't have uh, the kinds of places and communities that, that you would like to have. And uh, so I, I find it's unfortunate that we spend uh, so much time talking about policy. You could have the best policy in the world, but if you don't have people on the ground who know how to execute, manage, and maintain a place, then none of it matters. And by the same token, you can have really great design uh, in a real, really well-designed public space. Uh, but if somebody isn't there to maintain it or manage it, it's going to go bad and, and fairly quickly. Uh, so all three of these areas are incredibly important, design, policy, and management. And uh, the best places really uh, seek a balance uh, in those and really find a way to emphasize uh, how each can play a, a positive role. And so the cool thing about uh, going to an IDA conference is you really get to see uh, the management side of things very well because there has been this, you know, incredible growth in the place management world uh, over the last 20 and 30 years. Uh, And, you know, let's be honest, that's because a lot of cities just don't manage public space very well uh, for a variety of reasons that uh, we could all uh, discuss and debate. Um, But in especially in larger cities, uh, there just is not very good public space management. Uh, that's that's very common. And so um, people in their own neighborhoods or mini communities will create these organizations so that they can get the uh, attention that they feel is really needed uh, in their area. And so now there are these hundreds of organizations all over, not just the United States, but Canada, uh, uh, United Kingdom and, and other countries. And uh, it's really a, a pretty cool thing to see, and I think there's a lot to be learned here about what is effective at the block and neighborhood scale, uh, and probably a bunch of lessons learned when we think about the notion of subsidiarity and how um, how we might need to reinvent our local government uh, over time. Uh, we're in a period right now where there's a ton of reinvention going on, and a across society in a lot of different ways. And I think it's a great time to start to ask ourselves very uh, challenging questions about how things are managed. Um, it, it sure seems in our area that resources are stretched thinner than they've ever been. Staffing is tremendously hard uh, on on just about every business or industry or, or that, that I talk to. And so there's a lot of questions being asked uh, about how people can maintain their core services and uh, uh, do it to a high level. And that's leading to, I think, a lot of interesting thinking that is reinventing industries, business, uh, nonprofits, uh, government, you name it. And there's a ton of that that really needs to happen at the local government level uh, as well. Uh, and uh, so I think there's 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 uh, immense amount of uh, lessons that can be learned from place management organizations that deal uh, directly with problems uh, with people and problems at, at a very small scale. So uh, if you haven't, uh, if you're in the urban design world or planning world and you haven't heard of IDA or participated, I would encourage you to look them up, uh, maybe get connected with an organization that is uh, participating with them and think about ways that uh, you can connect uh, with people who are doing the day-to-day work Uh, on the ground. Um, Next year, IDA will be in Seattle. And uh, so anybody on the West Coast who's really uh, interested in this and not familiar, uh, I would would, uh, encourage you to take a look at it. It's uh, uh, 
it's a very, very cool group of people, very interesting what is going on and uh, everything from very small towns to the largest cities uh, in North America uh, participate. So there's really a little bit of something for everyone. Okay, chapter two. Uh, there's a little bit of a, I guess, a tie-in to that topic here. Um, we'll see how well I'm able to uh, connect the two. But, um, you know, I, I, I may have mentioned before, I've talked about, you know, the, the struggles that I see happening with our uh, kids' school related to uh, buses and to finding bus drivers and busing now. There's a lot of layers to this. Um, I would, by the way, note that I see this problem written about and talked about uh, for virtually every school and school district uh, in the country right now. So this is not like a hyper-local concern. There is a shortage of uh, people who are, frankly, just qualified to drive a school bus uh, out there. And uh, there's a tremendous need. And um, many schools are struggling. Our school, uh, in particular, almost daily has sends out alerts about certain routes that are just not covered uh, because they didn't have a driver. And it's a huge challenge. Obviously, if you can't get kids to school, they can't learn. Uh, and so it's it's an it's an enormous issue in education right now. And our our school has even just taken on uh, some debt to buy some buses. Um, and set up their own bus system, uh, but they still have to get the drivers. And it's it's a huge challenge. It's a big frustration. We're fortunate that our kids don't uh, rely on the bus service, at least at the age we are now, and, and how we're able to deal with them. We're kind of shuttling them around ourselves. But uh, for many families, they absolutely rely on the bus service. And uh, there's, there's a ton of problems with that, uh, with, with not being able to have uh, reliable on-time service. And, uh, it, I see, I see our school board struggling with it. I see many school boards struggling with this. So there's, there's one great aspect that I know has been talked about in the strong towns world, which is, you know, some of this is a, is a side effect of, uh, 50 years of decision-making that schools have made to, uh, essentially put schools in locations where, um, kids can't walk to school. And that's absolutely a part of it. Uh, if you're my age or older, I'm I'm 53. If you're my age or older, there's a pretty good chance that you walked to school, um, either elementary or junior high, middle school. Um, more likely than not, that you walked to school, uh, whether you lived in a small town or a big city, that was probably the case. Uh, if you're younger than me, uh, it's more likely than not that you didn't walk to school. Uh, and that's because of uh, um, a whole shift in uh, policy and design. There, there we are back again to uh, my design policy and management um, uh, three-legged stool. But there was a, a major shift in the thinking about uh, how schools should be designed, where they should be located, uh, and really, uh, the approach to education in general, which really pushed larger and larger schools. Uh, in, in, let's say, 100 years ago, schools generally uh, were much smaller uh, than they are today, uh, especially at the uh, elementary school level. 
and they were really embedded uh, in neighborhoods. And so the vast majority of kids walked to school. Uh, and as we shifted to a culture where more and more people uh, drive a car to get to their destination uh, for just about everything, we also changed the educational model uh, so that the schools got bigger and bigger. Uh, I have uh, friends who have joked uh, that uh, basically schools are sized based on the most expensive piece of janitorial equipment. Uh, and there's probably some truth to that. You know, it became more a function of efficiency. Uh, of operations than anything. And so a lot of elementary schools now, and for years have been what they call four section schools, uh, which basically means there are four classes at every, every grade level. Uh, and that means the schools themselves are larger and larger. This paralleled uh, a major change that happened in uh, rural America and small towns where schools were consolidated. Uh, and so uh, whereas almost every tiny little town uh, in the country used to have its own school, even if that was like a one-room schoolhouse or just a very small building. Uh, for example, my dad's uh, school in Baser, Kansas, uh, Baser uh, at the time was a town of about 600 people. They had their own school. And uh, I'm going to get, I'm, I know I'm going to get this wrong, but I think in his graduating class in 1953, there were about 12 kids or so in his graduating class, maybe 15, 16. It's, it's in that ballpark. Uh, so there were very small classes, uh, but, but the school was the heart and soul of those communities. And we embarked on a policy uh, really driven uh, from the top down uh, to say that those schools were not efficient, they were too small, uh, and we needed to consolidate uh, schools. And so many small towns lost their school, uh, and uh, even schools that used to be out more in the rural areas, not necessarily even in towns, were closed. And you would have uh, a county uh, that would end up with just one school system uh, very often in, in a lot of rural communities. The One of the effects of all that is you had a lot more kids uh, now in transportation time uh, that didn't used to be. Because whereas they, they might have been able to walk to a school in their town, now they're going on a bus to a consolidated school uh, somewhere else. So to use my dad's town as an example again, uh, that school district or that school consolidated with another uh, nearby small town that was probably, I'm going to say, 10 to 15 miles away called Linwood. And uh, they became the Baser Linwood um, uh, High School or Baser Linwood District. So the high school, um, now those kids are all, the kids who were in Linwood and, and nearby to Linwood were all bused to Baser because that's where the school uh, is. And this, the combined high school was built at the time on what was more of the edge of Baser. So it was not in the heart of the community anymore uh, and um, made it difficult even for the kids in Baser to walk there. Uh, and all the kids from the other outliers were, were bused there. So, so we had this uh, major change in educational uh, philosophy and management that had a dramatic impact on um, uh, how kids uh, get to and from school. And so we had what 
where, where school busing used to be uh, a fairly minor uh, percentage of kids, uh, it has now become uh, a majority in a lot of places. And so that's obviously driven a huge demand and, and a need for buses and bus drivers. It's also created an enormous expense for a lot of schools and school districts. Transportation is a huge expense uh, on the education side. Uh, and uh, and it's a, and it's a challenge. There are obviously other many other spinoff effects with, which people have you know written about for years, which uh, in, include the fact that there's a whole lot of small towns that once they lost their school, they just like withered up and died. Uh, and uh, frankly, there's a lot of urban neighborhoods that that experienced a similar fate because urban school districts used to have smaller uh, neighborhood schools. Uh, in their neighborhoods. And once those schools were closed and consolidated into larger schools, uh, it had a terrible impact on the glue that held uh, those neighborhoods together. Even if those neighborhoods were poor and struggling, uh, the kids all went to school together, they walked there, the families knew each other. Uh, and when you lost that bond, it's, it's, a real, uh, it, it's a real killer to a lot of communities. Uh, there's, there's no two ways around it. So um, that kind of brings us to today. And now we have this system, uh, where, uh, there's a majority of kids who are bused to school, uh, in, uh, and, and we have an entirely, um, uh, separate bus system just for school kids, uh, in basically everywhere in the country. And we obviously do this because we care about the safety of our kids uh, and we want them to have something dedicated to the schools. Uh, and it was one of those things that just kind of seemed like a good idea at the time, but has metastasized in, in ways that uh, I'm sure were not planned or thought of uh, when school busing started to become a thing. Uh, the, originally, we started busing kids to school in any real way uh, in the 1920s. Uh, and I guess that really shouldn't be a surprise because that's the era when a whole lot of things uh, started to change in how we um, uh, how we plan, built, and interact in our society. That was uh, the era when uh, we started to see mass ownership of automobiles. Uh, that was the era when we we shifted to more of a prof- quote unquote professional management of city governments. Uh, and sort of the creation of uh, an administrative uh, apparatus that did not really exist before in a meaningful way. Um, in the city planning and development world, that's when we started to institute uh, zoning ordinances, um, parking requirements, when we started to have a much more concerted effort to uh, socialize transportation costs and build uh, large amounts of infrastructure. Uh, that's really the era when everything changed. Uh, and, um, it, it, one of the things that I find fascinating and where I wanted to get to with all this is it's been about a hundred years since we did all of that, since we had this really major shift, uh, in society in so many ways. And, uh, and something that's occurred to me, uh, that, uh, that, uh, I haven't written about before, but I'd, I'd like to at some point is it, it feels like in many ways what we are experiencing in uh, our society now and, and have been over the last 10 or 15 years is a gradual and sort of herky-jerky, painful uh, return to how we used to do things uh, 
before that shift in the 19 teens and twenties, uh, in society. And, uh, we, we did a lot because we, we entered a period of time where we had a lot of wealth, uh, and we had new shiny objects that we thought we could, um, redesign society around. And, uh, it's taken a long time. And, and, uh, I think to be frank, a lot of those things just haven't worked out very well, uh, for us. And, uh, whether you're talking about how we rebuilt the entire way we interact in cities uh, around driving uh, to how we uh, manage our cities and the policy we created for cities. Uh, there's an awful lot that is in question now. And I think you can see where we uh, there are cases where we uh, are adapting very naturally back to that's to an era that was similar uh, to the pre 1920s era and there are other areas where we are kind of being forced back into it. And I think the school busing example to me is one area where we're being forced back into doing something different. Um, I, I, I cannot see for the life of me uh, how our current situation is sustainable uh, at all from, from a uh, economics, just from a purely economic standpoint uh, of uh, busing kids to school. Um, I just don't think we're going to, from everything I observe, we're not going to uh, find a way out of a, this labor shortage issue anytime soon, if ever. Uh, and if we do, there will be enormous costs to it uh, that will uh, completely drain away the money that is needed to educate our kids. So I suspect we're going to have to get much more creative and do things uh, differently than what we have been doing them the last several decades. And let me just give you one example of what I mean by that. Years ago, uh, in the Kansas City Star, they used to have this, uh, they had a weekly news magazine on Sunday uh, that was just called Star Magazine, uh, where they had you know, different kinds of stories that were a lot of like feel-good stories and things. And uh, they used to have a column at the back um, that uh, was basically like uh, somebody, they would ask somebody who to write a short column of something from their youth. And so these were often uh, people who were older who would write columns of what it was like when they grew up uh, in Kansas City years ago uh, or in this area. And they were always really kind of sweet, interesting uh, little stories, you know, just, you know, five or six paragraphs long. Uh, and I, I don't know why, but I always used to read them. <laughs> I thought they were interesting. Uh, just the voices of people kind of telling their own stories. And, uh, one of the things that was remarkable was, um, you know, Kansas city, like many uh, American cities had a very extensive, uh, streetcar system all the way up, uh, until the mid 1950s when it was really dismantled in favor of buses. And for all the people who wrote these stories of their time growing up in say the 19 teens through the 1940s, uh, they all would talk about how they used to, uh, as children, uh, ride the streetcars everywhere, uh, often on their own. Uh, and many of them rode the streetcars to and from school. And it really got me to thinking that, you know, it really is bizarre in, in a lot of ways that we have this, uh, we have a, a bus system for adults and a bus system for kids. And uh, it, it feels like the kind of luxury that a very, very wealthy society has um, but one that is getting increasingly 
pinch for money is not going to be able to afford. Uh, so uh, I can certainly imagine a scenario where we find ways to manage uh, this situation differently by having kids ride the city bus service uh, with some adult supervision and assistance. Uh, and it's something I've kind of kicked around a little bit, and I'll probably write this out in, in a proposal a little bit more. I think there are some other cities that have experimented with this. Minneapolis comes to mind that I think I, I've seen an article several years ago where they uh, started working in this area by uh, having kids ride the city buses. Um, but it just feels like a situation we have that can't go on very longer. And in many ways, again, this feels like maybe maybe part of what's happening is we're we've exhausted what's possible with how we tried to reinvent society a hundred years ago. And we're in a time period where we're going to reboot and look back at some of the ways that we used to do things. Uh, And obviously not everything we did, we did well or was right or good a hundred years ago, but we kind of threw the baby out with the bathwater in that era and tried to invent you know, the new modern utopian way of life. And there are aspects of that that worked out nicely. There's a lot of it that created enormous problems and problems that um, don't have good solutions today. Like, for example, on the busing deal, I could I can imagine a scenario where in our part of the city that we could um, come up with a system that would work pretty well uh, for our kids riding city buses with adults uh, supervising them and getting them to and from school. I can imagine how that happens because we live in the part of the city where there actually is ubiquitous bus service and the kids who go to our, our school all live within that area. That's not going to be the case in suburban areas uh, where there just is almost no bus service uh, or certainly no more, no routine bus service. Uh, and so different solutions are going to have to be found there. Uh, but I, it's hard for me to imagine that the current scenario we have, uh, will work. Um, by the same token, I think there's a lot of things related to, uh, life in 2023 and, uh, things that really don't also feel sustainable, uh, for a variety of reasons and ways that we're looking back to what our grandparents and great grandparents did and said, you know, maybe, maybe they had some you know, they did some things right. <laughs> you know, maybe we shouldn't have thrown out uh, all those things at once. And I, I've talked about this before when I talk about just how we uh, how we uh, consume food, how we how we cook and consume food. And there is, you know, a, a, a very common line today that is basically say eat eat like your grandparents ate, um, because they may have been poor, um, but they probably ate. Uh, food that came uh, from ingredients that they could identify. Uh, and uh, knowing exactly where the food comes from, what it actually is, that those things uh, are better for us. Uh, and they're better than the mass-produced, uh, industrialized uh, junk that is so common for us uh, in our world today and has been for 50 or 60 years. Um there's a lot of things that I think relate to that, that, uh, are, are 
are are good for us to think about and are changing in in many ways changing back to uh, a previous era a long forgotten era so i'm curious uh as i talk about this what's your experience send me a note uh send me an email and uh if we get uh, a good amount of responses i'll put together a blog post and include them i'm curious two things what do you think about this notion of uh, cities having completely separate bus services for adults and kids do you think that's do you think that's sustainable in today's world and what do you think about what is changing uh, today in our world that starts to resemble uh, a little bit more of how life may have been say in 1910 uh, as opposed to how it is today and how it has been The last thing I want to talk about uh, today is uh, just a little bit, actually a little bit more on um, thinking about rural areas and small towns. Uh, we had the experience uh, recently, um, we had the opportunity to go uh, spend some time riding the Katy Trail uh, in central Missouri, which is a, a rails to trails project. Really, really wonderful, uh, wonderful trail that goes across the entire state of Missouri. There's a section of it that goes along the Missouri river, um, near uh, Columbia. That's especially beautiful. And, uh, uh, we, uh, we went out there and uh, rode back and forth on a long stretch and then, uh, spent the night, uh, out in a small town, uh, in central Missouri called Boonville and uh, had, had a really incredible time. And, uh, it's the sort of thing that if you are lucky enough to be able to get away and do something like that, uh, there are some really incredible, uh, places you can see and visit. And it's just really great to get out, uh, into, into nature a little bit, to ride your bike, to, um, breathe the fresh air and spend some time in places you may not go to. And one of the things that you start to see, you know, on trails like this that have existed for a little while, is how some of the smaller towns uh, or places along along the route have reoriented a lot of their activity to um, cater to trail riders um, because it's actually become a really great economic development tool for them. And uh, I thought about this because at the same time as we are writing this, this trail, this Rails to Trails project, uh, which... Uh, I mean, that, it was certainly a project and there are parts of it that have an expense to it. You know, there are bridges uh, over rivers and other things that cost some real money. Um, but we're talking about, you know, the width of a gravel bike trail that uh, a lot of these improvements are, are comparatively inexpensive. At the same time this is going on, the state of Missouri is looking to spend uh, over a billion dollars, maybe $2 billion to uh, widen Interstate 70 across the state from uh, four lanes to six lanes, uh, the entire length of the state. And it really strikes me as it's another example of how we just get so stuck uh, in our thinking uh, about uh, what what is the purpose of uh, transportation expenditures and what is the point of investing for economic development. This interstate already exists. Uh, adding a couple lanes to it does not make it reach uh, a single uh, community that isn't already along its route. 
so in a sense, it's, it's just, uh, the something that engineers would call a capacity improvement. I've driven this route. God knows how many times, uh, the idea that you need six lanes, uh, of freeway through the heart of Missouri is frankly ludicrous. Um, there are large sections where there's just not much traffic at all. And even when there is some traffic, it's just not a big deal. Uh, and, uh, so it's the kind of project that we just seem to keep doing out of nothing more than inertia. That is, uh, we have this idea in our head, uh, for the last 50 years that building freeways is a good thing that it helps our economy, that it helps connect places. And so therefore we should do more of it. Uh, and that's just not, it's just obviously not always the case. Uh, and oh, by the way, these things are extraordinarily expensive, uh, to build. I mean, when we start talking, you know, over a billion or $2 billion for a state like Missouri, that's some very, very real money. Uh, and, uh, you have to ask yourself, where else could that money be spent? Well, uh, on this same trip, we had the chance to stop into another small town that's not on the Katy Trail called uh, Arrow Rock. Arrow Rock's a really charming and tiny historic uh, village along the Missouri River. Uh, it's near the town where I went to high school in, uh, which is called Marshall, uh, Missouri. Uh, Arrow Rock uh, has a lot to offer for it. Uh, it, it, it's economy such as it exists really does kind of, you know, trade on tourism these days. There's really only a few hundred people that live there, uh, year round, but it's, it's a very charming place has this fantastic, uh, theater that has a summer theater program where they have actors that come in uh, from all over the country and, uh, put on performances all summer long that are really well attended and really well done. It's, it's, um, it's one of those unique things that, uh, happens in, in places that, uh, don't get a lot of attention, but, uh, happen all over mid America and are really pretty cool. Well, so we pop into the coffee shop in Iraq and of course, immediately we're chatted up, uh, by two men uh, hanging out in the coffee shop, one of whom said he was the former mayor, but then he casually admitted that basically everybody at some point in Iraq becomes the mayor. So <laughs> it's, uh, you know, he, he said it was really nothing special, but, uh, we talked about the Katy trail and how we were out there. Uh, we'd done a trip, we'd spent the night in a nearby town, which meant, you know, we spent some money there. Uh, and he said, yeah, they'd really love to have an extension that connected to the Katy trail. Uh, and, uh, they've just, and they've talked to the state about it, but it's just really hasn't ever gone anywhere. Uh, they can't really figure out how to get it done. And that really struck me. That conversation was like, of, the more we talked, the more we thought, oh my God, of course, of course, Arrow Rock would be perfect to connect to the Katy Trail. It's a, it's a great destination. There was no reason, there's no physical reason why uh, a connection couldn't happen. Uh, and of course, I jumped on, uh, you know, mapping software to look at it. And there's, there's plenty of, you know, physical ways to get there. Uh, and, and make that sort of a, a spur happen that might connect to Arrow Rock. Maybe it goes up to Marshall and a couple other nearby towns. It connects back down to the main, to the main link. And, you know, what a, what a great feature that would be, uh, to bring more people into the community who might, 
uh, spend more money there. Um, what fa- what's fascinating, of course, is that projects like this really are just not even on the radar of most uh, state governments in how they think about transportation or economic development. And uh, it's it's an incredible shame. We just have uh, we have uh, a system that just kind of cranks out. Uh, high cost projects that don't really do anything for rural towns. Uh, so what we might say are very expensive failures uh, that we repeat over and over and over again. And we often ignore these low cost interventions that might actually do something. Uh, they might do something really good for a lot of places and uh, provide a different kind of uh, economic development than what has been standard operating procedure uh, since, you know, 1962. So again, I come back to, are we going to keep doing this? You know, is this, this system, these ideas that really were put in place a hundred years ago or so, at what point do enough uh, places say, this just doesn't work. Can't we just look around and see that these investments that we've made over and over uh, aren't really improving the lives or fortunes of people uh, in these communities. Uh, and, and we have to get creative and think of some different approaches. One of the things that I've talked about that I, I feel like, you know, we could do if we had a serious conversation about uh, helping uh rural communities. If we, and, and by that, I, I, a serious conversation also meaning that we're, that people who live in cities like me are not condescending uh, towards small towns uh, and people who live in small towns. I mean, I grew up in small towns, so I don't see it that way. Uh, and uh, I have never really understood the kind of hatred and just, you know, uh, even if not hatred, just a lot of the uh, condescension people have towards um uh, rural America. Uh, these, you know, these communities I grew up in were really wonderful places to live as a child. Uh, and, uh, there's, there's, there's an awful lot of really good things to be said about living in a small town or especially growing up in a small town. Um, so, but one of the things is that we don't often, uh, we don't have, have a conversation where, um, we lean into the positive qualities of life in small towns uh, and really try to emphasize those. And really, when you think about it, the positive qualities are, uh, if you want to differentiate yourself, that you're not like the big cities, uh, that you're not uh, striving to be a city where people uh, get in a car and drive everywhere and commute, you know, 20 minutes a day each way to something. And unfortunately, our smaller towns have just become like many versions of the big cities where our schools have been consolidated and put in locations where everybody has to drive to the commercial development is out on the highway now, uh, as opposed to being in the town where it used to be. Um, the jobs are spread out uh, all over the place and city, the cities themselves have been reoriented much more around everybody getting in a car, including all the 16 year old kids uh, who are desperate to get a license so they can cruise around town, which certainly we did. And I think kids today still do to some degree. Instead, 
you know, there's an incredible benefit by being in a place where that is not the case, uh, where uh, maybe people can walk to school, uh, where people have a stronger sense of community because you're out, you know, riding a bike, you're walking, you're seeing your neighbors, you're talking to people, uh, you have local stores, not just the Walmart uh, on the edge of town. And I lived through the era where uh, people were excited to get Walmart uh, because they were frustrated with the locally owned stores and the quality of prices of products. And it was pretty cool to, you know, go to someplace where they had maybe bigger selection and the prices were a lot cheaper. So I understand all that. Um, but at the same time, we gutted the economy of so many towns uh, when, when all that transition happened. Uh, and, uh, now you just don't have as much of even the local, uh, business community that a lot of small towns used to have. Uh, and, you know, as a result, there's a lot of people who probably were maybe like their town, but they had a more of a business mindset, had some ambition to it. And they said, you know what, I'm just going to go to a bigger city because why stay here? There's no, there's no life. There's no economy here. There's no local economy anyway. So I might as well go to a bigger, bigger place. And that's something that I think we have to really focus on and correct. I've, I've spoken before that I think there is a historic opening right now uh, for small towns uh, in rural areas to capture more people and actually attract people to them. There was a pretty big shift of people moving during COVID out of cities into either suburban or exurban or rural areas. Uh, and there's a lot that's changed um, since certainly when I was a kid. Uh, the technology and the ability to do remote work is much better today. Uh, and uh, I think there's just uh, a lot of, uh, you know, culture change happening that small towns could benefit from. Uh, not to mention, there's just always something nice about being near places where actual food is grown. And that's not something we may think about very much today, but it, who knows? That could be, that be, could become an issue um, if, uh, if there are, if scary trends in our world continue, which, you know, who knows if they will or won't, but um, we live in a country where we don't think about food scarcity uh, very often. Uh, but historically that has happened and it certainly could happen again. It's nice to be in places where you can actually grow things uh, and, and uh, or you get to know the people who grow things. So I think there's an incredible opportunities, but, those opportunities are not going to be cashed in if our economic development minds just look at small towns as big cities in miniature uh, and places to, uh, you know, move lots of traffic to consolidate everything into a larger and larger operation uh, and to spend outrageous amounts of money on things that um, have been proven not to work. Uh, or have been proven not to really help communities grow or stabilize themselves. So again, I think this is a chance where we might look back to what, what was it a hundred years ago that uh, made life interesting or livable in those towns? What can be done today to uh, mimic or at least uh, learn from some of the success and modernize it. And so I hope we can get there. I hope, uh, 
I hope at some point we can break out of these patterns um, on our own without being forced to. Um, I'm not sure we will. We might, uh, we might just kind of keep going and doing what we're doing until the money runs out. Um, but I, I hope more places can take a critical look at how they are uh, and think about smaller investments, uh, you know, creative solutions uh, to today's problems that um, may require some work. They may require a lot of work, but could pay off with huge dividends uh, down the line. So that's my three chapters for today. I hope you enjoyed uh, this episode. This is Kevin Klinkenberg. Have a great day.